doing. That's uh, fantastic, really well read. Um, the highlights of um, chapter 8, and uh, as, um, let's go back, as uh, Owen said, who can say whether they're the highlights or not? I, um, it's a long chapter, Romans chapter 8, and I uh, read it through several times over this week and selected those uh, verses for us to read. I'll explain why in a moment or two. Over these four weeks, we've been looking at this big story, an inner, what I called inner story. Four um, mornings and evenings, actually, spent around the book of Romans and what it's all about. And I think I've said to you all, if you've been around on these uh, Sundays, that it's called inner story because Paul goes on an inner journey. He's utterly transformed on the inside from Saul, the oppressor of the church, the oppressor of this reform group within Judaism that seems intent on breaking down the barriers and intent on reaching out between, but, uh, further than the national borders and incorporating and including even Gentiles, Paul, or Saul, as he was called then, he's dead against this. He is a persecutor of all those who deviate at all from traditional Judaism as handed down to his fathers. He considers himself the policeman for, for guarding the borders of Judaism and its identity. And then he has this encounter with Christ that we talk again about in a moment on the road to Damascus. And that encounter with Jesus utterly transforms him from the inside out. And because it transforms him on the inside, it transforms him on the outside. And he becomes a completely different person. In fact, later his name is changed from Saul uh, to Paul. But he becomes an a person intent on a different way of living. And I urge you to, uh, to just uh, download the other two talks in this series. The reason is, Romans is one of those books that, as I said on the first week, is dense. That's partly why I chose some highlights from Romans chapter 8. Trust me, if we put it on the screen and read it, you'd have been confused by the end. We do that every week with the Bible, don't we? We put up loads of words and then forget what they are saying. And we get lost in not really understanding the context behind those words. That's been a big thing we've been thinking about over these few weeks, context. Unless you get a thing in its context, you'll always end up with it out of context, and then you'll be in trouble. So, in a story, uh, cha uh, chapter 3, part 3, is this isn't just about Paul's inner story, it's about our inner story. Paul reimagines. He reimagines Judaism. And we looked at that on the first week. He was a Pharisee. Uh, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a great follower of the great Pharisee, Rabbi Shammai. When we read the New Testament, actually, and we read the Gospels, and we read about the Pharisees, there's something the New Testament doesn't tell us. That was that there were two completely different types of Pharisee. Check it out. Study it. Study it. And these two great rabbis who set up the two great schools of Phariseeism 
lived in the century before Jesus. One was called Shammai and one was called Hillel. It's impossible to understand most, much of what Jesus says to the Pharisees without understanding that. And the New Testament has been used to exploit and oppress many people through lack of context. Hillel and Shammai were rivals. Hillel and Shammai saw things different. Shammai, he was a traditionalist, just like Paul. The letter of the law was what mattered. He was the conservative. Hillel was more liberal. Hillel was more ready to move on. And often Jesus' uh, encounters are with the Shammaiites, the Pharisees who stuck to the law. Pharisees have all got a bad name, haven't they? I mean, if you know anything about Jesus, Pharisees. But actually, that's not the truth. There were some and some, these two parties. Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's out to get everyone who doesn't keep the law to the last letter. He's a follower of Shammai. But Paul never talks about Shammai at all in all his writings. Elsewhere, not in Romans, he says that he had been taught and studied under another great rabbi called Gamaliel. Have you heard of him? He's actually mentioned. Gamaliel, Paul is claiming to have studied under, I'm sure he did at some time, Gamaliel turns out to be the grandson of Hillel. Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel. Gamaliel's quoted in the Acts of the Apostles when they come to him, the Jews, and say, this, this, these followers of the way are growing. This, this kind of unorthodoxy is growing. This heresy is growing. Gamaliel says, well, if it's of God, it'll thrive. And if it's not, it won't. So chill. Gamaliel is the grandson of his grandfather, Hillel, who took a pastoral attitude to life. What actually happened to Paul, without doubt, although he never tells us this, we know what he's like when he's on the road to Damascus. He's going to persecute the Christians and kill them. He's a hardliner. He's a Shammaiite. But we know what he's like as he's changed by the grace that he discovers in Jesus and his boast that he, discover, uh, that he, uh, he studied under uh, Gamaliel. He turns out to be a man of grace and inclusion, and we get to that. So he rethinks Judaism altogether in the light of this event. When he's knocked off his horse, the man of the law, and he realizes, I said this last week, he thought he was 100% right, and now he discovers he's 100% wrong, and it's not law, it's, a, it's not about law, it's about grace. And because he's lived under the law, he expects to die, but he doesn't die, and he's shown grace. And as we saw last week, just in the first few opening verses of Romans, he talks on and on about grace. I hope you've been reading Romans through the week, if you've had an opportunity to. So many of us, we get stuck, don't we, with kind of, kind of you know, beginner-level Christianity. We've gone on to degree-level, all sorts of other things, but we still have kind of you know, sat-level 
you know, Christianity, and then we say, it's not working for us, this isn't working for me, I'm too sophisticated, but we never actually stop to read. Grace is talked about constantly by Paul in this first little chapter to the Romans, because it transforms his life. The problem with the book of the Romans is it's been often misunderstood and often used to beat people. Paul, the anti-feminist. Paul, who definitely wouldn't join an LGBT club. Paul, who's against most people who don't see things his way and con constantly talks about the, uh, the wrath of God and the righteousness of God. As Paul encounters Jesus, he rethinks, he remodels Judaism. He reimagines it completely in the light of Jesus, who he would have regarded as a failed Messiah because Messiahs aren't supposed to die. He believed a Messiah was coming to defeat the Romans, but Jesus comes and he dies at the hands of the Romans. That's one of the reasons why Saul can't accept Jesus. But as he encounters Jesus, he rethinks his whole way of understanding Judaism in the lights of the grace he's been shown and of a suffering Messiah, not a conquering Messiah with a, with a sword. And then we looked last week at how Paul, in the light of what happened to him on the Damascus Road, went on to rethink empire. Because you can't help but understand that as well. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul, the first words, he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. And we said last week that Christ isn't Jesus' surname, it's his title, it means Lord. I'm an, I am a follower of the Lord Jesus. He lived in a Rome and he was, right, he was writing to the Romans who lived under Claudius, who were just switching to Nero, who fiddled while Rome burned. Nero who claimed the cult of being a god, Claudius, who claimed to be God, both gave you the Pax Romana, pay your taxes and you'll get Rome. But Rome was on the side of the powerful and not the poor. It excluded as many people as it included. So Paul, in the light of what happens to him when he falls on the ground and he's shown grace, rethinks the, his whole attitude to the Roman Empire because he's a Roman citizen too. And he sees it in its corruptness and he sees it for dividing the rich and the poor and bringing down the poor and forgotten and condemning them. Last week, we uh, looked at Paul and the Empire. And just a, a little recap on that as well. We took a snapshot at the city of Pompeii. Uh, Pompeii. And uh, the reason we looked at Pompeii is because... Oh, in August the 24th, you remember last week, 79 AD, Pompeii was obliterated by, by, the, um, by Vesuvius, which exploded, and it was, it was wiped out in minutes, and everyone was caught in time, frozen in time. So looking at Pompeii gives us our best snapshot of life in Rome and Roman cities. Pompeii was an important Roman city, and it was frozen like this. Those of you who haven't been there, there's a, there's a guy, he was, in, he was in bed, he was asleep, the ash fell, and he's still there. Actually, if you get close, you can still see the clothes he was wearing. 2,000 years ago, everyone was frozen. The city was frozen. Pompeii tells us about what the empire was really like and life on the streets were really like. 
And we looked at those verses from chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, that have often been taken as a condemnation of anyone with a sexuality that's not heterosexual. We looked at the, that, that uh, condemnation that comes out those seen as tough verses about the righteousness of God and God giving people over to their, you know, unnatural desires. And of course, this means homosexuality, etc., etc., even though we discovered that the whole text never uses that, uh, that, that word, which, by the way, didn't exist then anyway. And we saw that Pompey, remember Paul's writing into this context, was filled with these things. I showed you this phallic symbol. It's, it, it was, um, it was on, it's, um, it's on a wall in Pompeii. And I said there were phallic symbols everywhere uh, around Pompeii. But I didn't show you that one. And 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 I didn't show you that one. When I said, I teach Nathan all the time, you should always know more about what you're talking about than you ever say. So that's why I didn't tell you all that stuff last week. This city, Pompeii, was soaked in sex and the abuse of people. And I showed you that. That's taken from the wall of, of one of the buildings in Pompeii. If you're ever on holiday, you should go there. It's an amazing afternoon. <laughs> and I showed you that last week. But I didn't show you that. And I didn't show you that. That takes a long time to work out, that one. And the point is this, that Pompeii, like Rome, had given itself over to sex. But the history and the culture of Rome is that you could have sex with whoever you liked, whoever you liked, as long as they were a slave. And all of the prostitutes were um, slaves from the Roman Empire shipped across the world and used and abused and destroyed. They were the gladiators. They were the have-nots. They were left out. And all of this was respectable in Rome. The perversion of sex. This is not to do with loyalty. It's to do with use, the use and abuse and exploitation of people. That's what Paul's talking about. And then he says... And you've given up the God of the universe. And you've given yourself over to all of this exploitation. And it's terrible. And they wrapped it up with their gods as well. Here is Pan, one of their gods, having sex with a goat. Again from Pompeii. So we looked at how we got the wrong end of the stick about all of this. What Paul is saying, in the light of the grace he's been shown, I'll move on from that. <laughs> in the light of the grace he's been shown on that road to Damascus is, live with grace. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, I'm sure you read this as you've read Romans through, Paul says, there is one command that puts all the others in its place. And none of the others, he says, I'm quoting him, matter anymore. Only one, the law of love. The law of love, graciousness. 
self-discipline that means I will never exploit or use another person or put them down in any context. That in every area of my life I become other-centered, Christ-centered, instead of self-centered, instead of exploiting. So we discovered that those pa that passage at the end of Romans chapter 1 has nothing to do with the way that it's been used by some. By the way, we have only discovered uh, Pompeii and its um, treasures in the last um, few years. In fact, some of these things only came into uh, public view uh, since the year 2000. They were discovered a long time ago, but nobody felt that you could show them to any audience, particularly a church one on a Sunday morning. And therefore, we robbed ourselves of an understanding of the context of Romans. But we've now got it, and there's no excuse. This is a gospel of grace. But grace, as Paul argues, and we don't have time to uh, look at today, grace doesn't mean we should live like we, like we choose. Grace means that we have to extend grace. So the first thing about grace is self-giving and self-discipline and loyalty and faithfulness, which is why relationships must always be grounded in faithfulness, never in promiscuity or use whatever type of relationships they are. And today we're going to look at how Paul resaw the whole cosmo cosmos, the world, the whole of creation, the cosmos. Because for Paul, his grasp of the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that meant is what he spent those 14 years studying when he disappeared from public life before he re-emerges as the, uh, the missionary to the world. He's had to think through his Judaism and his Romanness and his attitude to the empire and his attitude to his religion. And he has to think through his whole attitude to the whole of the cosmos and creation. And he does that thinking and it's hard going. And he comes out not with some new religion, but with his old understandings of who God is, etc., etc., but with a Jesus and Holy Spirit twist, if you like. He sees it all differently because of that. And I said that, I've shown this slide each week, that the way we study the New Testament very often is we look at the trees and we don't see the wood. And there's this guy and he's looking at this tree up close and he's examining every letter, but he misses the fact that he's in the wood. And what we're doing over these four weeks is looking at the wood, the big themes of Paul, not the tiny verses. But the study of the tiny verses out of context has led us up the garden path to mix my metaphors. It's got us lost. We have to look at the big pictures. And the big picture is, God's chain, is Paul's changed view of God's. And the big picture is God's, uh, Paul's changed view of Israel. And the big picture is, is Paul's changed view of the future. His changed view of the whole cosmos. Now, we should look at the little words. But the problem with looking at the little words before you understand the big picture is you always, or very often, jump to the wrong conclusions, as we have done in some of the ways I've already illustrated. Jazz. Paul was a jazz player. Um, I went to see that film last night, La La Land. 
I recommend it to you. It's brilliant, actually, I thought. I didn't think I'd enjoy it, but I did. In fact, so much did I think I'd enjoy it that I went to sleep in the first little bit, almost, you know, kind of, well, it was warm and I was tired and it was Saturday. And then um, I, I woke up still near the introduction and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I'd recommend it to you. And um, I really did. And uh, one of the themes on that is a theme close to my own heart and close to why I'd already put this in. You see, the thing is, um, as I've said to you before, um, the great thing about jazz music um, is, is simply this. You go to a jazz club and the music's always different and the film explores, explores that one little point. That's not giving anything of the plot away. But jazz is always different because the trumpeter sometimes plays these notes and sometimes plays those. And then the bass player will respond to the trumpeter with a bass line that's slightly different. It's always different. It's always being reinvented as one instrument asks answers another but in order to play like that you've got to be good you've got to be really 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 good you've got to know more than the scales you've got to know more than the rules you've got to know more than the notes you've got to feel the music it's got to come out of your soul or you can't play what happened to Paul is he went away for 14 years and he learned to play jazz he learned to play jazz. He thought, if I believe there is one God, what does that mean for the way I see the rest of the world from now on and all creation? He learned to play jazz. And this is an important point. Because all Paul's letters, there are 13 of them in the New Testament, as we said last week, seven that we know he wrote and perhaps uh, the rest that may have been written by him but could have been written by his disciples. They bear Paul's name because his disciples write in his name. They don't feel worthy to put their name on the documents. They put his name on the documents. There are 13 Pauline, Paul or Pauline letters in the New Testament. And here's the big thing. They are all occasional. That is very important. They're playing jazz. Let me explain what I mean. The way that the New Testament has been misunderstood is if Paul says something to the Romans, it must apply to every Christian, always, in every context, wherever. If Paul said something to the Corinthians, it must apply to everyone, always, in every church, in every age, in every circumstance, in every language, in every culture. No, because the careful reader of Paul's letters will discover he says things to one church that... He says the opposite to in another church. These are occasional letters. Every single one of them, as you can tell if you read them, is written to people he knows. Every single one of them is written into pastoral situations that he's familiar with. He knows the characters and he knows the town. Every single one of them, well, every single one of them except maybe Romans, is written as a direct response to some request that that community have made of Paul. He's responding to particular situations and particular needs with particular practical pieces of advice. And because we've not realized that these are occasional, some masquerading as people who understand have lumped on the church the blunt instrument of their lack of thinking about context. And you see that again with what we've just looked at, Romans chapter 1. 
It's been done and people have lost their lives because of what's been preached in a shallowness. Paul knows how to play jazz. So he says different things to different churches at different times. He says to the Corinthians, I wish you'd all remain single just as I am. Well, we know Paul had been married. We don't know what's happened to his wife. And yet he's telling everyone to become single. So if you're just queuing up to get married, um, uh, Mike and Caroline are up there. They're going to get married in a few weeks' time. Paul says to you, I wish you'd remain single, Mike, as I am. No, Caroline doesn't think that's a good idea, especially now she's bought the dress. You see, and I'm going to conduct your wedding. So is this some, have I kind of airbrushed out that reading in Corinthians so we can go ahead, rather than saying to you, Mike, I wish you'd remain single. No, I understand the context. Paul, for one, believed that Jesus was returning soon, like all Christians at that time. And secondly, Corinth had a huge famine going on. A huge famine, the worst in its history. People were starving. And Paul's saying, look, in this circumstance, with Jesus returning soon, the way I see it, and with this huge famine on, stay single, don't get married right now. You know, everybody's dying around us. But for lack of context, we yank it out and then we thrust it in everybody's face and it masquerades as scholarship when all it is is abuse. We have to do the hard yards or withhold our great opinions on what these biblical texts mean. Paul plays jazz. He reimagines. And he's constantly talking. Uh, he's talking to different audience as he reimagines. Now, here's the, the trouble with looking too closely at the words. Paul's views also change and evolve. If you take Paul's epistles, letters, and you don't read them in the, in the order they happen in the New Testament, which is basically from the longest to the shortest, and instead you read them in chronological order, the order he wrote them in, you can find out what that was by Googling, you'll find that Paul slowly mellows. As the years go by, this Pharisee of Pharisees who's been hit by grace, he slowly grapples with what that grace means. And the more he grapples with what that grace means, the more including he becomes. It's a remarkable thing. We need to study jazz. Uh, N.T. Wright, who I've shown you a slide each week, but I've not shown it this week, he says Paul's great themes are monotheism, election, and eschatology. And I said that means one God, monotheism, for everyone. Election means uh, one people, everyone's included. And eschatology is about one future. And we're going to talk a little bit about reimagining election and uh, eschatology. Election, what's that word? Some are elect, some aren't. Some are predestined, some aren't. If someone doesn't pray the prayer, is it because they're predestined to go to hell? Are there people walking our streets right now that God hasn't chosen? You know that argument, don't you? Yeah, no? So, you know, did we get, you, did we get chosen happily and others didn't? Tough. Do you know? Some are predestined, some are elect, some are chosen, some aren't. Tough luck. 
It's the way people get round, people who've never heard, isn't it? Well, they weren't ever supposed to hear, but I'm chosen. If you're chosen, you're chosen, and whatever you do, you're chosen. But then we all fear that perhaps we weren't chosen, and perhaps we just think we're chosen, and perhaps actually we're going to fry, because God fries people who aren't chosen. Does that all make sense to you? Well, it doesn't make any sense, does it? But you know those arguments, don't you? Here's the problem. One of the ways we misunderstand, uh, we misunderstand Paul's letter to the Romans and all his other writing is like this. Here's a sunrise. We all know, don't we, now that the earth spins around the sun. Yeah? Thanks to Galileo, etc., etc., we know that the earth spins around the sun. Of course, Galileo and others, they paid a huge price for suggesting this to society, to government and church. They were condemned as radicals and heretics. No, the earth is the center of the uh, universe. We don't live in a heliocentric universe where the where, uh, solar system, where the sun is the center. The earth is the center. And of course, what used to happen is this. People like Galileo, etc., etc., used to explain to people the mathematics that had led them to this view. Copernicus used to explain this. Nicholas Copernicus, whom Galileo followed, he used to explain the mathematics of how they worked out the sun was the center of our solar system, not our earth. They used to work it out. And people used to begin to believe. And then they used to wander down to the shore and they used to see the sun rise. And they used to go, oh, all that science is one thing, but look at that. That sun is rising. It is clear from what I can see that the sun goes round the earth and not the other way. Whatever those people tell us, all those experts, I'm looking at that sun and that sun is rising. So you reach the wrong conclusion based on what you think you are watching. Does that make sense? And you reach the wrong conclusion because your view is me-centered. It's not centered on an understanding of the universe. I'm just saying, as far as I can see from my little perspective and the perspective I'm taking, that sun rises. It's the sun that goes around the earth and not the other way around. We've done that in terms of theology. We read Romans and, forgive me, the whole of the New Testament in a me-centered way. It's not uh, ununderstandable, is it? Because we are me-centered. It's a problem we have to overcome. We see the world from in here outwards. And so the first question we ask when we look at Romans or anything else is, am I going to go to heaven? Am I going to be saved? Am I okay? Does God love me? My life, my hopes, we see it me-centered. But it's not, I hate to tell you this, it's not about you. And it's not about me. Paul, when he's talking about election, isn't thinking about individuals at all, actually. He's thinking about the whole of history. I'll explain that very quickly. There's, we talked about the, um, the wrath of God last week. And I said that wrath or anger, that Hebrew is best translated anguish. 
when you think about that, it makes a lot, of, a lot of sense. It was Rabbi Jonathan Sachs who told me that, who is, as you know, a fluent Hebrew speaker. And he said the problem, Steve, with Christians is, well, he actually said, the problem with Christians, Steve, is they never come to us who actually speak Hebrew and ask us what the Hebrew means. So you're in a pickle. So we talk about the anger of God. He says, actually, the Hebrew word is much better translated anguish. And then he went on to say, because if God is father, why would a father be angry with a son and wipe him out because of something he's done? Rather, the father would be in anguish to see his son making mistakes. Another concept is the righteousness of God, which is going to fry us all. Righteousness is a funny term. It actually simply means rightness, the rightness of God. There you are. The first time the term um, the righteousness of God is mentioned in Romans is in chapter 1, 17 verses in. But here is the verse. For in the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed. When you look at Jesus, you see what the rightness of God actually is. And it turns out it's first and foremost about grace. And it's about love. And it's about inclusion. It's about justice for all. And it's not about the powerful putting down the weak. It's about everybody being lifted up. And Paul, who didn't write in chapters, remember, he just wrote the letter... He says this, but we call it Romans 3, verse 22. This righteousness, this rightness of God is given to us through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jews and Gentiles. Everyone's in. This rightness, this mercy, this justice, this compassion, this grace is granted to all humanity, I now see. I used to think it was just for Jews, but it's no, it's for everyone. There's no difference between the Jews, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and the Gentiles. God is the God of the universe, and he's on the side of everyone, and his rightness is mercy, and his rightness, his righteousness is justice, and it's, his rightness is grace. Which leads us to the rise of nationalism, in case you think we're talking about first century Rome and it has no impact on us now. I don't need to talk about this, except Donald, we see what he does, is put his hand on two Bibles. One is his mother's, actually. Barack Obama began this when he was at his second inauguration. He put his hand on a Bible that was a family Bible, and the other one is the Bible that Abraham Lincoln used at his swearing-in ceremony. So those are two Bibles. And uh, Donald is swearing on the Bible, the book of grace, the book of inclusion, the journey towards inclusion. And there's Marie Le Pen in France, far-right nationalism, claiming that because Trump has been elected in America. Nationalism in France will triumph. Paul, however, is a global, inclusive universalist. Those aren't my terms, actually. They're all the used theologically. Paul is a globalist, an inclusive thinker, and a universalist. That's the way in which he sees the world. The only badge now is the badge of faith. 
The only badge now is faith in the grace of God, which includes everyone. God's righteousness turns out to be about compassion and grace. Paul argues, if you read Romans, that the true Israel is everybody who lives by faith in the grace of God and the mercy of God. So, here's Romans 5, a chapter we didn't read but we could have. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, Paul's metaphorically talking about Adam, so also one righteous act, Jesus, his life and his death. Paul sees everything through the lens of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. So also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. All has to mean the same in the, the beginning of the sentence as it does in the end. You know that old, that old thing about original sin? You're a sinner because you're after Adam, and you're all in Adam, and so you're going to die. Do, do you know that? Every child is an original sinner unless you pray the prayer. You can't escape this curse of original sin. That's not what Paul believed at all. We can talk about that this evening if you want to come along. But all must mean all in the same sense in both bits of this sentence. So if all people in Adam die, Paul does believe that, but for a completely different reason than the original sin thing. And I, we don't have time to look at it. It's got, it, that's there. But if all die, all people are condemned through this one trespass of Adam. So all, if all is universal all, all must still be universal all when it says all live. It can't be all die. Well, some get to live. The all must mean what it meant in the second half of the verse in the same way as it did in the first half. Does that make sense? And then Paul says, for just uh, as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The question is, is the many the same as the all? Or is Paul just playing jazz? He wrote this on a journey. We go, oh yes, the word all, the word many, oh, what does that mean? Well, Paul just scribbled it out. What he's really saying is God is about love and grace. Here's Romans chapter 11, another chapter we don't read. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Israel has experienced, because he's, you know, you've got some hardline Israelites. Israel has exper experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles, non-Jews, has come into God's salvation, which is everyone. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. All Israel, not some of them, not the ones that live faithfully. All Israel, says Paul. As far as election is concerned, predestination, etc., etc., all of that, as far as all that's concerned, they are loved for God's gifts and his call cannot be taken away. That's what he's saying. You can't remove this stuff. It's there. It's there. That's what he says. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result, uh, as a result of their disobedience, so, they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. This isn't a penny-pinching God who lets a few people in and sends most to condemnation. 
This is the story of forgiveness and mercy. And actually, it's all in Rob Bell, my friend Rob Bell, you know, who's been here. This book, Love Wins, have you heard of this book? Rob got into enormous trouble for writing this book. But it's a brilliant book. It's a brilliant book because it explores a scholarly look in easy-to-explain language. It explores these things. It looks at these things. Oops. Here's Romans chapter 8, the one we actually read. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Paul's discovered, he's realized, that it's not just people that suffer, but actually the world's been exploited as well. The whole of creation is groaning, and isn't that relevant to us? We've exploited our water sources. We've exploited the air that we breathe. We've exploited uh, our food. Everything is polluted. Is that not true about our world? We've exploited the soil. We've exploited the air. We've exploited our atmosphere. And we are paying the price. A ground filled with toxins. Our, our food filled with toxins. The whole world is groaning and waiting for this liberation, this grace that will come to it. So it turns out that Paul's a revolutionary. He's a revolutionary of love. There's only one law that really matters, and it's the, uh, it's the law of love. America first, Britain first, nationalism first. Paul says, the cosmos first. The cosmos and everyone in it. The world and all its peoples and all its animals. Uh, Daryl up there is, gonna, is planning a, a conference about animal theology, which he's going to talk about in one or two weeks. That's a really important issue. And animal theology isn't, oh, be nice to your cat, and is your cat going to heaven? Animal theology is about how do we create a sustainable world in which we don't end up killing ourselves besides anyone else. How do we do that in an environment where biodiversity really matters? That's important. Revolutionaries are extraordinary, and with this, I finish. You see, the thing is, when you realize, when you stop and think about it, Paul was this revolutionary who saw the world in a completely new way because of what happened to him on that road. But here's the problem. We turn the game of revolutionaries, one generation's revolutionaries, we, their game becomes the holy ground on which the traditionalist stands. Isn't that amazing? So Paul was this radical, who he was a heretic as far as the Jewish uh, scribes were concerned, and they threw him out and they wanted him dead, and you can read his letters, he's forever escaping being wiped out by them, because they saw him as a heretic. But now we go, that radical Paul, he's our king, Saint Paul. Therefore, his radical gains become, as I've said, the holy ground on which every traditionalist insists on standing. Because we play by the law, not by the spirit. We don't play jazz. 
And if Paul was stood right here beside me, would he want us still to be answering questions about first century society? Or would he want us to be tackling questions about 21st century society? Would he be pleased if we said, Paul, we're absolutely nailed to every piece of ground you claimed? Or would be, be aghast and say, but that wasn't the point. The point was to play jazz. The point was to move on. The point is to work with grace and work out what grace means in every new context you face. We end up following yesterday's revolutionaries and replaying the past instead of pushing on to the future. The church's fears tether it to the past in an unhealthy way when each one of us with brains in our heads are called to confront the issues of our society and our city as, as Owen said in his prayers and our world and we've got a lot of confronting to do. And this revolution is a revolution of love. Paul says in chapter 13, all that matters now is love. Therefore, now, there is no condemnation when you speak to a bunch of Christians who are some of the most condemned people on the planet. They're condemned because they didn't read their Bible today, because they didn't pray long enough, because they had a dirty thought on the way to church, because they, you know, except, oh, if only people knew what I was really like. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit it's God's spirit at work in us that tells us a new story about who we are, gives us life, and this life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You're set free for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. The people couldn't live right. Jesus lived right, and he was crucified for living right. He wasn't crucified by God, he was crucified by the scribes and the Pharisees and the Romans and the cowardice of the disciples. He was crucified because of sin and failure, but he triumphed over it and he rose from the dead. And Paul realizes this, the way to beat what's wrong in society, you can either wage war at it or you can suck it into yourself and overcome it. And what Jesus did in dying was he sucked all the sin of the world into himself all of the prejudice and the hate and the contempt and the weakness of Pilate, etc., etc. He sucked it into himself and he dies and he looks defeated and then he rises again and he says this revolution of love and grace is the way to live. So like I said last week as I finished, your life is a story. And it's the tale of two stories actually. One about all the stuff that happens to you every day, but the other... The second, about your inner story, which is about the way you deal with the stuff that happens to you every day. Either through the inner story of grace having come on you, or the rules and regulations story that tells you you're no good and nor is anyone else. So, to reprise what I said last week and what Owen said in his prayers, what is your inner story? Is your inner story a story of grace? Your inner story is unseen. Do you know, we can rock up and sit in a church and sing all the songs about God's love, but your inner story might be one of rules and regulations. You may be glued to Phariseeism, the wrong type, the Shammai Phariseeism. 
What is your inner story? Your inner story is unseen, often unrecognized, normally untold, often unknown even by us because we don't look at it. But your inner story actually defines what it means to be you and how you respond. Do you come out? When somebody upsets, do you come out spitting? Or have you learned that you are rescued by grace? And do you share that grace? Your inner story determines what you think, the way you feel and what you do. Your inner story convinces you of what sort of person you are. As I said, it described it last week, that inner little uh, monologue or dialogue with yourself that happens in the morning when you get up and look in the mirror. <laughs> you look rough. Do you know that little voice? You're stupid. No one likes you. When you walked in the room, they all went the other way. They wish you weren't here. You'll never amount to much. You're too old. You're too fat. You're too thin. You're too short. <laughs> Someone your color's never going to get on in life around here. Do you know that inner story that puts you down? That's how Saul lived. But he discovered a different one. Your inner story tells you what you can and cannot achieve in life. The difference you can make. You're living your inner story when you're awake and when you're asleep. You live in it. Your inner story controls your life, but it can transform your life, just like Paul's story was transformed. Inner stories don't have to be bad to get better. We all need to work on our inner story constantly, and we're going to be talking about that next week. Your inner, you are your inner storyteller. And what Paul says is the Spirit of God comes to live in you and transform that inner story, and with you begin to tell a better story about you and everyone else in the work. Through the work of God's Spirit, you can edit and change your inner story. But first, you have to acknowledge what it is. That's what we're going to look at as we conclude this series next week. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> Um, before we sing again, shall we just pray together around some of those themes Steve just talked to us about? Lord, help us to be people of grace and inclusion. People who radically reimagine life, society, community, our city in the light of Jesus. Lord, we want to be people who say others first, the vulnerable first. Not me first, us first, first, Britain first, America first. We seek to be people who understand that we have no other debt than the debt to love one another, to love our neighbours as ourselves. Lord, teach us to play jazz. We know that all of creation is groaning, so Lord, help us to live life, following, understanding, imitating the just, inclusive, loving, gracious, universal rightness of Jesus. Amen. Um, we're going to 